but actually, you know, to be under, however inaccurate that fire, to hear those uh, sirens going off, to be hitting the deck, to be hearing the thump, you know, these things sober you up. To know people who have been repatriated uh, dead um, sobers you up. You know, to understand uh, having some notion of the risks of battle um, sobers you up and makes you understand things better. But it also means that if you say something should be done about X, Y, and Z, nobody can turn around and say, well, you've never had that experience, so how do you know? My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. Our veteran in politics this time is former Intelligence Corps soldier, Isle of Wight MP, Bob Seeley, MBE MP. Bob is from a long line of politicians and soldiers. And in this episode, our host Johnny reaches into the history of the Seeley family, including the story of World War I warhorse warrior. They chat about being an MP today, what makes a good politician, as well as demonstrating just how busy constituency life can be, as this interview was captured during Bob's lunch break between engagements. It's time for you to meet our guest. I'm joined by the Member of Parliament for the Isle of Wight, and that is Bob Seeley, MBE MP. Bob is a commentator, an expert on international affairs, as well as being a Member of Parliament and of course, he's a former member of the Intelligence Corps, um, our third guest from my corps to join the Veterans in Politics podcast. Now, we have caught um, Bob uh, on in a busy uh, constituency day today, but how are you today? Um, Johnny, I'm very well. And so I'm just grabbing a pizza and eating, so I hope that doesn't put off your listeners. So hello to you and hello to your listeners. I'm well. No, it's, I appreciate your time. It's now an overcast day on the island. and I've been sort of running it errands and I've just got back. Stuck a pizza in the oven and look forward to chatting with you. No, it's really it's really good of you to give your time. And this is obviously part of the dynamics of being a member of parliament. The literally grabbing interviews, food while you can on the hop. So um, I purposely want to run this interview while you've grabbed those uh, minutes few. Uh, and I appreciate you uh, getting us in on what is a busy day for you always and always for members of parliament. And our listeners will be interested to understand that di- that dynamic. But of course, you're not you're not the only member from your family to have been a member of parliament. And in, indeed, you have a, a relative that was a member of parliament that fought in the First World War. And this is something that we've documented, not only on this podcast, but every year on our social media. We like to remember um, those from our community that fought and died in previous conflicts. But can you perhaps tell us a little bit about Jack Seeley's exploits and perhaps how he and other members of your family have interviewed your own approach to public and well, military service. That's very kind of you to say that, Johnny. I think in Jack's case, his horse Warrior was more probably more famous than him because Warrior was 
the the most famous war horse in World War One, and um, actually the only horse I think I can't remember if Red Rum had an obituary, but it is the only horse to have had an obituary in the Times. Um, I come accidentally from quite a military family, but they were originally industrialists and uh, coal owners and sort of ran farms and that sort of thing. Uh, but my great, great, great granddad was an honorary colonel and the rest of them were all um, reservists and did their bit. So my great granddad was a, <coughs> a reservist lieutenant colonel who led the South Nazis in World War One, and sadly took them to Gallipoli. And we all know that wasn't the greatest thing. And then my granddad was a lieutenant colonel of the same regiment, took them to World War II. And again, they sadly suffered much the same fate at the Battle of Gazella um, in, you know, after Tobruk in the summer of 1942. My granddad died leading his men alongside his men in battle. Um, my great uncle Jack, who was an MP down here, funnily enough, as well. Um, and he was also briefly Minister of War. Uh, after he resigned as Minister of War, he went off and um, did lots of things in World War I, uh, including um, lead the Canadian Cavalry Brigade, which I think was sort of described as, quotes, unquotes, the parachute regiment of their day. They were meant to be sort of a particularly tough group of men um, and, you know, and horses. Um, and he ended up leading one of the, there seemed to be so many last charges in the British Army, but the, the 1917 Cavalry Charge in Murray Wood uh, was arguably the last significant charge in the British Army because at the time it prevented the the Germans from splitting the British and the French armies near Amiens Junction, which might have been a game changer in World War One if they'd been able to do so. But that desperate charge by Jack and his Canadian cavalry um, through Marais Wood, um, I think, pretty much stopped that and meant that the that the Germans couldn't split the armies, and that was his high point and as far as the Germans got. Um, so yeah. Um, so lots of lots of relatives in the military and a few a few MP a few relatives who were MPs before that as well. But thank you for asking. And of course, Warrior, who was a very very famous uh, World War One wars. Well, that you are that link to the past um, through that family, as you've just described. And as I'm um, as I said, I'm very keen to ensure that that relationship between veterans and members of Parliament and service that we we continue to evangelize and we continue to tell their story. I think it's really important. And I would suggest our listeners do look up the stories of those individuals you mentioned, as well as looking uh, visit when you, if you do visit Parliament, do go and visit the recording angel. Um, and you'll see those names of not only the members of parliament, but the lords and the sons and the staffers as well uh, that we um, we we remember. And indeed, most recently um, from from our cat badge, Ollie Thomas died in Afghanistan, a former staffer uh, working for a, a Liberal Democrat member of parliament. So it continues today. Sorry, tell me about that person. I hadn't realised that. Ollie, Ollie, I actually did Ollie's repatriation. Um, which was um, probably one of the most difficult, um, but a, a huge honour to have um, helped deliver Ollie back home. Um, so Ollie was sadly killed in a helicopter accident in Afghanistan. Was, was, oh, I rem- yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, so it was a very difficult day for the battalion, um, for his family, and indeed um, he worked in Parliament as well. So the the connection between politics and the military as documented by Jack Seeley and as documented by yourself and your colleagues you know, as one of those 50 members of the parliament that do does have a military connection. Um, but, and also like me, you've not only 
served in the intelligence corps but you've had a, a bit of a hybrid reservist career as well with long periods of time working full-time um yeah in the army um so what have kind of been the what would you say have been the best bits and the highlights of of that quite um long um reservist and full-time reservist military career um to be honest i, I, I never really ended up doing a uh, I mean, I love being in the Int Corps Reserve. Don't get me wrong. I, by accident, I never really did an Int Corps, um, uh, Corps role. Uh, the closest I got was working in the target audience analysis cell um, in Basra Airport um, when I was um, did my first tour in Tele 12 and 13. Um, and I had a great tour. I think it was probably my favourite, favourite tour at all. Um, um, but I was um, effectively just doing lots of atmospherics reporting. Sorry, let's get rid of that. I was doing uh, lots of atmospherics reporting, Johnny. So I just went out all the time with whatever infantry unit uh, was going in and out of the sort of, um, uh, we called it Leaf Island, but it was a sort of uh, peninsula, the island just north of Basra on the, uh, the Chateau Island waterway, if I remember my um, geography. Um so and and I just basically because I was a bit of an frustrated infantry soldier, I loved that tour more than any other because I just went out a lot and we just patrolled through the villages in that area, partly looking for the rocket teams, the teams that were rocketing um, the Basra Cobb, um, but also Basra Airport, the the main operating base at the airport, but also just going through the villages, chatting to the locals. Uh, and conversing with the village elders, just sort of testing the atmospherics in the village. You know, do we occasionally get stones thrown at us? How friendly were people? Had they seen this sort of these, these, you know, Josh, I can't remember what they called, were they Josh Armadi? You know, the, the various sort of militia teams, had they been around? So I, I had a great tour and I was really, really, really lucky to, to have had that tour. Would you say that it's left, it's shaped you in your approach to public service since? Well, I think it's just very good to have experienced. It's really useful to experience lots of different bits of life. But it's also really useful and valuable to have been on tour with people and to know people, to have served yourself and to have known people to have served, to see what these operations are like, be they high-intensity warfare or low-intensity warfare. So you can speak from experience. And I think one of the problems with recent governments, not only New Labour, but also Cameron and Osborne government, is these people had spent so much of their lives just in politics. And it is difficult to respect people who are professional politicians if they don't have real life experience. And so whether you're a nurse or a business person or a soldier, you know, to have been in difficult positions, to have had to cope with things, to have been in high stress jobs, et cetera, et cetera, these things are really important. Yeah. And I think the awareness of that, particularly over the pandemic of people that do have those real, real jobs and um, whether it be in, in NHS um, police fire or indeed the armed forces. And all of a sudden we've seen the armed forces again, um, conducting up, you know, support to the pandemic. And perhaps as a nation, we've got to know the armed forces again, because they, 
they've been so distant on on foreign operations and here they are once again whether it be in the past helping out with the floods or again um in support of the civilian power um here in in fighting covid so i think it, you're right it's really important that those people with real life experiences do go into politics i particularly evangelize over, over local government the bit that's closest to us in our communities and of course like yourself into parliament as well yeah I mean, look, people, people sort of, I think you can, the Americans tend to sort of over-worship people who've had military experience. So I would not, I would not put people quite on pedestals, but I do think overall, being in uniform, whatever that, whatever, you know, RAF, Navy, Armed Forces, being in uniform, being on active service, having done tours of duty, I think is important and valuable and makes you better and makes you stronger. And, you know, I was lucky. By the time that I was on Telic 12 and 13, it was relatively benign. But when I turned up there, we were still being rocketed eh, twice a week. You know, it eventually died off to sort of one a month. But actually, you know, to be under, however inaccurate that fire, to hear those uh, sirens going off, to be hitting the deck, to be hearing the thump, you know, these things sober you up. To know people who have been repatriated uh, dead, um sobers you up you know to understand uh having some notion of the risks of battle um sobers you up and makes you understand things better but it also means that if you say something should be done about x y and z nobody can turn around and say well you've never had that experience so how do you know because there are things that we should be committing to fight or to be willing to fight and actually to to have had experience on tour i think gives you an authority to speak which others frankly lack I, I, I couldn't disagree with any of that. And it's something I was talking to um, your colleague, Bob Stewart, about actually, is that um, I remember during the 90s um, when he was a practitioner of uh, uh, a low-intensity conflict, it was argued, in, in the former Yugoslavia, and I was beginning to read and, and learn about that. And then all of a sudden, I was in a conflict myself in Northern Ireland during the Good Friday Agreement. And yeah. that kind of leveling up of understanding, reading about it and seeing it on the news and all of a sudden being in the middle of it. Um, and then fast forward to in my 30s, you know, doing a repatriation of a colleague having served in Afghanistan myself, that leveling up of, of, of that sobering um of, of your the way that you approach life it, i think is really important and can and how you channel that into politics it, it's, it can only be a good thing it can only be a good thing i mean you know i wouldn't oversell it but i wouldn't undersell it either there are you know there are extraordinary life experiences to be had as you know a nurse working on an a e ward as frankly a small businessman trying to find your way and set up something and you know i mean one of the people i most admire and I don't think he's got any military experience, was uh, Guy Opperman um, uh, in the house because he was a you know a national hunt jockey and he's broken more bones than people have had hot dinners. Um, and, you know, to people who who understand risk, who understand fear and cope with it and overcome it, you know, I, it's profound respect. Yeah, those role models can extend business. My dad is a small businessman that has you know gone through recessions and started a business from scratch. No military service, but been a huge influence on the way that I've approached my life. So those those role models can come not just from the military, but from all walks of life. Um, but in, obviously, the one thing that we have when we say in the military those those values and standards and the the lived values, those bits that we really that help guide us and shape us going forward in life and. It must be 
a bit of a challenge sometimes when some your love and affinity to the armed forces and a particular policy might come up from government. So sort of hypothetically speaking here for a second, but how do you deal with those moments where perhaps um, particularly around issues of defense or foreign affairs come up and it, you kind of have a bit of an internal challenge based on those, your background and those values and the experience. Uh, Johnny, what do you what do you precisely mean by that? I mean, I, obviously, I find it interesting. I, I find it quite frustrating as well because still many of the people making those decisions don't necessarily have life, ex- you know, that that same experience. So I do I do find it frustrating at times because in any way, many ways, you actually want to be able to contribute more. I mean, are there practical ways in which obviously people be aware of the whipping system? In, in politics um, about how party discipline is maintained and, and you know how people often um sometimes vote against their party but yeah. but if there's a particular issue that you know is really tricky to deal with personally are there practical steps you know, who do you go and speak to in order to have that discussion and to get your point across on those particular issues uh- there are various people you can speak to. You can speak to Downing Street, you can speak to the whips, you speak to the ministers. Um, I have to say, I think the thing that works in Parliament, sadly, is persistence. And you just keep banging on at something or at somebody until you get something off them. So this is not a... Parliament is not a section attack. It's more like a grinding, you know, campaign. It's more like if you want to get something and you're not getting it immediately... Um, then you, you know, if anything, you need to you know, develop some siege mentality and some siege tactics to get what you want. And it's persistent. It's the persistence of wearing people down. Maybe in this day and age, it, it's better to compare it to a counter an insurgency operation where you're just you know continually saying, continually um, trying to get government to do what you want, trying to get a minister to do what you want. So it's just repeatedly making your case, it's having good ammunition, and then repeatedly firing it. Right. I like the analogy. <laughs> and I think our listeners will too. So I, I guess the impression that I and the thing I'm trying to unpick here for, is that it's not simply a case of being whipped into, um, obviously, as a member of a political party, you ha- have a whip yeah. system, but there is the opportunity to influence, shape, get your point across, you know, yeah. and inv- invariably, sometimes you're going to have fallouts um, that we you are know, behind the scenes. Um, so there are, there are, it, it obviously, you imagine it's frustrating, but you can, get across that sometimes by the actions that you take in that strategy, that counterinsurgency um, over particular issues. You can, but as it's everything in life, you just crack on. Um, you know, um, I think my two favourite expressions are, it is what it is. When everyone says, how am I? I say, I'm surviving, because that's the best you can do in politics. Before being elected, Bob, of course, you worked with some big beasts, some well-known names of politics. So the likes of Francis Maud, Michael Howard, Sir Malcolm Rifkind. Um, so back then, we we had this phrase, the big beast. Um, we then had different generations of politicians from the Blair Brown years and the Cameron Osborne, the, you know, the professional politicians, the special advisor class that went up through the ranks and became MPs. I mean, uh, have we gone through a shift to a different type of person in politics now? And what kind of people, whether it be in local government or in politics, in parliament, what kind of people do we need in our politics as we face future challenges? Um. I think we need people with a wide variety of life. We need all sorts in Parliament from all different backgrounds and experiences. Um, <coughs> I think, funnily enough, 
a lot of people say we need more military people in Parliament, but actually, arguably, we're reasonably well represented at the moment because there's 50 of us with some sort of experience in Parliament, which is higher than the national average. So having people in part with military background certainly helps to get on the candidate list, I suspect, for any political party. Uh, and it helps as a councillor as well. So whatever level of politics you want to get involved in, having a military background, having an organisational structure and understanding organisational structures is really important and really valuable. Uh, well, I agree. <laughs> uh, particularly that, that military cohort, which I've you know done a deep dive in. If anyone wants that information of who those people are in our, in our parliament, that military background. But of course, no one knows... Um, not even the local government association, how many of the 20,000 local government representatives, their backgrounds, because you know, we need th that diverse range in our, from all walks of life in our politics to make it better. And that's one of the reasons I first will do this podcast uh, and evangelize about it and also do campaign force as well. And, and um, so now, Bob, um, just before we wrap up, and I know how passionate you are about, about the island, um, about the Isle of Wight, as we want. I'm incredibly passionate. How can I not be? I wouldn't want to be the MP for anywhere else. It's an that's, <laughs> that's a, that is practically. I mean, I don't know. That's a, that's an arrestable question. Even asking my loyalty to the island. <laughs> I think I actually went on my first family holiday to the Isle of Wight. Um, Good. Yeah. Where? Whereabouts? Whereabouts? I can't remember. It was as a baby. Um, I, I disapprove. Can I, I disapprove of people who can't remember which bit of the island they they went to. So I need to know where you stayed, which hotel you stayed in, which restaurants and pubs you your family went to. I need to know all this information. A bit of homework. You're not very good, Johnny, at supplying a debrief, are you? <laughs> Considering my background, you'd be surprised. Um, exactly. This is very poor human I'm getting from you. <laughs> uh, but but linked to that, and I, what I. I hopefully won't be surprised by the answer that you give, but everyone goes into politics with some kind of mission, some kind of objective, something that they want to achieve. I mean, have you have you listed those things, or have you got a top? Yeah, three? I'm, the, I'm the only person, I'm the only MP, I think, who's written a, a manifesto for his or her constituency. So, absolutely, I have a long list of things, um, some of which we've already achieved. But I basically, I want an island deal, a, you know, better settlement for the Isle of Wight. Um, I want a uh, a new protected landscape designation for it. I want more housing for locals, but a lower housing total overall. Uh, we need to up our game on education on the island. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a couple of hours, delighted to talk about it. But yeah, I have written a manifesto. Very few of us have for our individual constituencies. So for sure. I think, and and for those that are looking into politics, I think that's a brilliant example of think about what you want to achieve and think about how you communicate that as well. And we'll certainly have in our show notes. Link I mean, Johnny, for me, okay, just in that point, it is, it is absolutely vital. I mean, there is an ego bit and an ambition bit to politics, and I really get that. But fundamentally, just going into politics because you want to be an MP or you want to be elected is not good enough. You need, you can have a passion and see it as a vacation, but you need to work out what you're going to do. And if you don't, I just think people, too many people just drift through a career and then sort of kick off in for ways that they're not quite clear on things that they're not quite clear about. And actually, you need to have a good strategic sense of what you want to achieve, uh, what you're likely to be able to achieve and all this good stuff. I think on those sage words of, words of advice, Bob, we'll end it there. Bob Seeley, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Ray. Hello, it's Johnny here. But guess what? 
It could be you right here on this part of the podcast. Whether you've got an organisation or a business or an individual that needs supporting, we are reserving this spot for members of our Parliamentary Business Club as a direct benefit of joining our club and supporting Campaign Force, or indeed sponsors of the podcast too. So this is something that interests you, then get in touch at johnny at campaignforce.co.uk. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.